Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Yo, it's Good New York. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're a socialist radio show and podcast for members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. NYC DSA is the biggest chapter of the largest socialist organization in the United States. We are run by our 5,500 plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Today, we're discussing the end of the legislative session in Albany. Throughout the episode, we'll be speaking with State Senator Julia Salazar, an active member of the Democratic Socialists of America, about fighting for socialism, both as an organizer and an elected official. However, first we'll be hearing a report from the DSA-endorsed Tiffany Caban campaign on Election Day and how her victory can continue to build working-class power here in New York City. If you live in Queens, get out and vote. Later tonight at 9 p.m., we'll be covering this election results live here on WBAI. But first, the headlines brought to you by The Thorn. This is Lee Zishi with the headlines from The Thorn. It's primary day, and last week, the New York Times weighed in on the Democratic primary for Queens District Attorney in favor of DSA-endorsed Tiffany Caban. The Queen's DA race has even influenced the presidential race, with both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who endorse Caban, being open to decriminalizing sex work, a major platform of Caban's campaign. And in Westchester, Lower Hudson DSA-endorsed public school teacher Kat Bresler is running for White Plains Common Council. The Democratic machine tried to keep Bresler off the ballot by challenging her signatures and using complicated election laws designed to make it difficult for primary challengers. Bresler is running on affordable and low-income housing. In Albany, at the end of the legislative session, the Greenlight Bill, which grants driver's license to undocumented immigrants in New York, was finally passed and signed into law over the objections of suburban Democrats. The law is a major victory for immigrant rights. A deal was also reached on the Climate Leadership and Communities Protection Act, which would make New York the sixth state to set a goal of 100% clean energy. At the last minute, Governor Cuomo swooped in and weakened environmental justice and labor standards. Listen to last week's episode of Revolutions Per Minute for more on the CLCPA. Working past the 2019 legislative session deadline, the state legislature killed bills that would ban solitary confinement and enact an automatic voter registration, infuriating advocates. However, Cuomo and the legislative leaders agreed to dramatically reduce the use of solitary by passing legislation and making changes administratively. Advocates are calling the deal an appalling act of cowardice. Cuomo also announced a plan to devote 500 cops to arrest for fair beating. Black and brown people are disproportionately targeted for arrest for subway fair beating. 
And on Wednesday, June 26, there will be public hearings in the Con Edison utility rate case. Con Ed is proposing to raise electricity rates by 6% and gas by 11% and wants to spend over 200 million ratepayer dollars to expand frack gas pipelines in LNG. DSA's Public Power NYC campaign is opposing the rate hike and fighting to decarbonize, decommodify, and democratize our energy system. The hearings will be at 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. at the New York Department of Public Service, 90 Church Street on the fourth floor. And now back to Jack and Desiree. If you have money. Um, unfortunately, Desiree could not join us today, but uh, we'll be hearing from her later tonight uh, live from uh Caban's, um, hopefully, the celebration for her campaign. Our daily headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group, covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethorn.nyc. And again, thank you, Lee Zishi, for an excellent reading of the headlines and all the amazing eco-socialist organizing work that you do. So before we uh, dive into our interview with Julia Salazar, um, and We've you already probably heard a little bit about this um, on the headlines that we just read. Uh, Caban's election is today for Queens DA, and it's a very, very critical election. Queens, if it was its own city, would one of be one of the five biggest cities in the country. It's one of the most diverse places in the world, and its population, particularly black and brown people, have been under attack by vicious state violence for decades. People have been thrown behind bars for doing things that really almost everyone does. What uh, The idea that people should be locked in a cage at all, I think, is horrific, but particularly when it comes to like smoking weed or you know jumping a turnstile because you need to get to work or to school. Um, so this fight is really about, um, you know, fighting back against mass incarceration, against the carceral state, against a regime of punishment against working class people, and about putting a working class queer Latina in the district attorney office to really transform it into a place of working class power. Now, there are real questions about the DA's office, but I think... Um, that's something that we can really elaborate on um, later tonight and about the struggles that will occur after the election. Right now, it's critical that if you have the chance, get out on Canvas, talk to, reach out to some DSA people, see if you want to go talk to them about getting involved in the last hours of the campaign, or at least please vote. Um, go vote for Caban. It's a really critical election. We have um, some recorded sound uh, directly from Tiffany Caban, and we're going to share that with you right now. If you have money, if you know how to game the system, you can do whatever you want in the city. If you're a person of color, you're poor, you're an immigrant, no one's on your side. My family is from Puerto Rico, and my parents worked hard to make ends meet. But no matter how hard they worked, the system cared more about protecting the wealthy. I'm a queer Latina from a working class family. People like us are exactly who the system is trying to keep down. That's why I became a public defender, to defend my community. I've defended over a thousand clients who couldn't afford to defend themselves who were thrown on Rikers because they didn't have money for bail, they jumped a turnstile, they struggled with mental health or substance use disorder. I'm running for District Attorney of Queens to bring justice to working people, to stop criminalizing poverty, to reduce recidivism, 
to decriminalize sex work, to end cash bail. But the corrupt queen's political machine doesn't want me to win because they get rich off of foreclosures, They've taken millions from developers, and I can't be bought and controlled. That's why they're going all in to elect Melinda Katz, because she will keep the status quo, take money from real estate, and protect the machine. Because she's a career politician who hasn't spent a single day in criminal court. That's not true. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> when we talk about the progressive prosecutor, these are the things that public defenders have fought for in court on the front lines every day and up in Albany for decades. Here's the simple choice. Your next DA could be a career politician or a career prosecutor, or your next DA could be a public defender. Who do you trust? Yeah, we are. It's great to hear directly from Tiffany. I thought that was a really amazing video. They got put together by her excellent team that's been, uh, you know, really organizing on the ground. Someone who came out of nowhere. People didn't know Tiffany Caban was just months ago. And now she's out there, uh, really a national figure um, on the front lines of this movement. Um, to try and change, uh, you know, the horrendous aspects of our criminal justice system. It's not really a justice system. And the Queen's machine, um, backed by real estate, backed by big capital, backed by the cops, is um, standing in her way. And we ha- we're uh, right now we're joined by uh, Michael, who is Julius Alzar's um, communications director. And he's taken on the uh, the New York machine before, and um, in many electoral campaigns. And uh, while we're um, waiting for Julia, who, as many New Yorkers have experienced before, is stuck in traffic, um, we'd like to hear uh, uh, your thoughts about like what it really takes and why it's so important to take on uh, the political machine here in New York. Yeah. So. Um Taking on a political machine is important because this particular machine, the way it operates, um, serves to enrich people who are politically connected and also um, creates impunity for people who are those connected people in a way. Um, so the one of the main ways that they will do this is through the surrogates court which is a um, little-known court in that is also being elected today, the surrogate court judges. Uh, and what a surrogate's court does is when someone dies or there's a dispute over their uh, property, the state basically has to decide what to do with it. Um, and so the people who end up deciding that are judges appointed by the county party. And so it turns out that large amounts of money are sort of being distributed through this means which creates a financial incentive to price people out of their homes or to create these property disputes in the first place. Um, So in terms of tactics, right, and beating a machine with a movement, which is what we were able to do with AOC um, and what, you know, I dearly hope we'll be able to do with with Caban, I know for sure that uh, a lot of the folks I know on the ground there are really strong field organizers, really strong general organizers. Um, The difference between the sorts of tactics that we like to use 
here in New York. And what the machine tries to do is we really focus on talking to voters. Seems really simple, but it's really not that simple. It's something that large parts of the political establishment here will send mailers. Um, they will support sort of um, other organizations to help them by canvassing or by turning people out to to wave on the street or to do whatever. But um, what what really sets us apart in as a movement is that we have this army of volunteer canvassers who feel strongly about the issues that we fight for. Um, and we also, at this point, have a cadre of electoral organizers who really understand the nuts and bolts of campaigning. Um, you know, skills that a consultant would charge, you know, ten or $15,000 to do poorly, we have people <laughs> who are willing to do for free or for, you know, uh, a normal kind of campaign, internal campaign staffer's salary. Um, and so... You know, the what this has been like is just watching in real time as a group of, a, you know, a small group of motivated people because we're we're big, but we're small. Right. Like there's what, four or five thousand members. I in? think uh, it's five thousand five hundred plus if the numbers that I have are accurate. Well, already <laughs> then we're, we're growing, baby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and this is in a city of eight million or eight you know, 8 million people and then a metro area of like way more than that. Yeah. I think it's like 20. Yeah. Like it's, it's, this is, this, we are a, definitely a small group of motivated people. And, um, you know, that's, that's the, as that quote says, I don't know who says it, but, um, that's the only thing that's ever changed the world. And that's the only thing that will change the world. It's so, but like as, what you're really saying here is like this people versus money is more than just a slogan. It reflects like the material reality of the campaigns on the ground. Like, for mm -hmm. example, in the Caban campaign, uh, DSA and coalition partners, because it's, you know, there's the 5,500 DS NYC DSA members, but there's also all of these coalition partners and their organizers that are also working alongside us, um, really pushing for this campaign by connecting with people on the ground by you know knocking on doors by making phone calls by like petitioning to even get caban mm -hmm. on the ballot in the first place well you have supporters of uh, uh candidates like melinda katz where it's like last night out of nowhere she just receives like twenty eight thousand dollars from real estate yep where it's like it's very clear the interest that she's serving she's serving capital well and you know one of the most shocking developments in the race was Rory Lankman, the candidate who was saying that he was, quote-unquote, the other progressive in the race besides Tiffany Caban, uh, when it became clear that her campaign was taking fire, he um, he left the race and said, I want all my supporters to support Melinda Katz. And a good number of the community supporters that he had gained up to that point like, were like, heck no, we're going we're gonna to stick with Caban because she's obviously the right choice. And honestly melinda katz is unqualified like yes she's run a big office before she's been a boss before but she's, she's never been in criminal court like it's it's really wild the folks that the establishment puts up and sort of desperately needs to um 
to win in order to keep its stranglehold on power. And you can see that. There was the letter from real estate saying, oh, our employees shouldn't vote for Tiffany, right? Because they're afraid if she gets in there that it's not just going to be working class people that are um, afraid of the DA's office. It's also white collar criminals. It's also, um, you know, some of the folks who have traditionally wielded power in our society. And we are now joined by state senator and DSA member Julia Salazar. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be back. Well, happy to have you here. Um, we have had a pre-recorded interview with you before, but we're very happy to have you live in the studio. Yeah, I'm thrilled. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, we could talk about the traffic that you're just stuck in, and I'm sorry for that, but we'll, we'll move on to the bigger questions. Um, why did you get involved in like the struggle against capitalism and the struggle for socialism? And why did you join DSA specifically? It was um, back probably in 2014 or so that um, I had been involved in, uh, at the time, throughout college, various uh, local labor struggles, um, showing solidarity, um, a little bit of other involvement in the, in the labor movement as an organizer. Um, and I, uh, I, I think that I just wanted to um, be able to, to organize with other people who were like-minded. Um, it was actually, I think, out of my own uh, material interests, I guess that um, I that I eventually I started reading Jacobin. Um, I heard about Jacobin reading groups locally, um, and it was through attending Jacobin reading groups um, and some involvement in the community, um, actually through Debbie Medina's campaign uh, for for state senate um, two years before I ran for the same seat. Uh, she ran as a, openly as a democratic socialist, um, that I heard about DSA and started going to meetings probably not until 2016, but um, began, uh, I, I guess, getting involved in socialist organizing locally in Brooklyn before that. It's, it's always like amazing to hear like the commonalities between how people got involved in DSA, but like also like the the particular stories that draw people in, like whether it was a reading group or it was a campaign or it was like Bernie or it was Black Lives Matter. There's like so many different um, ways that like really turn people against capitalism, recognize it as the enemy and realize the need to get involved in organizing and struggling for socialism. Yeah. Um, so why did you uh, decide to run for like state senator? I, um, I, I actually was partly inspired by Debbie Medina, the candidate who, who ran for the same seat um, two years prior and the two years prior before that. Um, but it was in the summer of 2016. I volunteered, supported her campaign. She is um, a Latina uh, lifelong tenant organizer from the south side of Williamsburg who challenged uh, Senator DeLon. And um, as a volunteer in her campaign, I was really inspired by her. Uh, I didn't, I actually never considered running for office myself until early last year when some um, fellow DSA members came to me. Uh, we had organized together around some electoral work we had done. Uh, we, we had done the Elia team campaign together, for example. Uh, and it was early last year that they came to me and said, someone needs to run against Delon. And I said, yeah, someone needs to run against Delon. <laughs> and then they they said, you know, you're the candidate. Um, and initially I was totally resistant, 
but over the course of only a couple of months, because there wasn't a lot of time to commit and decide, um, they persuaded me to run. Uh, it was particularly with our, our eyes set on the rent laws expiring this year. We knew that if we didn't elect um, a, an advocate for tenants' rights um, and if we didn't replace a state senator who had made clear his allegiance to the real estate lobby, um, that we would, we would be stuck with, um, with weak tenant protections all over again. And so that's what pushed me to run, and it really was hitting the ground running from there uh, because the race was in September. Well, I'm very, and I, and I think many others in DSA are very happy that your comrades motivated you to get out there and run, especially considering um, this past legislative session and all the victories that um, we had as a movement. But before we dive into that specifically, um, what's it been like being the lone socialist elected official in Albany? It's uh, it's been a it's been a wild ride, <laughs> um, it, but but honestly, um, I was really impressed by how productive this legislative session was. I feel incredibly humbled and fortunate um, to have come in at precisely this moment when the political dynamic changed, so that the, with the Democrats in the majority, um, I was actually able to pass a significant amount of legislation um, and and assist in passing the strongest um, tenant protections and rent laws that we've seen in a long time. Um, I I try not to, I guess, wear the, the socialist label as a scarlet letter. You know, I'm unapologetically um, socialist and everyone knows that. But uh, what I find actually is that there are a lot of more people in Albany than there ever, at least in my lifetime, than there ever have been who um, are willing to, they're, they're at least sympathetic to democratic socialism and recognize that um, even if, even for folks who don't explicitly identify as a democratic socialist, that we share, um, we share a, a common worldview in, in many ways. Um, and and uh, so I've, I've really enjoyed working with um, a lot of other legislators, especially new fellow new legislators. Well, this is a safe space to be an unapologetic uh, socialist, so don't worry about it here. And um, that reminds me of an interview that I um, read that you did last week where you made one of, if not the dopest statement I've heard from an elected official in my lifetime, where you said, quote, I'm not bothered by the accusation that I'm a socialist or a communist. I'm a Marxist, and I'm not ashamed of that. How does Marxism influence your strategy as a representative of working class people in a capitalist state? Um, I think that the clearest way that it that it influences my strategy and I guess the way that I operate as an elected um, is that I know that the the key to actually to 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 bring about transformative change is to empower the working class. Um, and and it means that uh, what we actually need to do is ensure that we break down the systems that have that have um, that have made it hard for working people to have access to the electoral process and to the legislative process. It means for me, it, practically speaking, it means fighting for public campaign financing, right? So that the, uh, more people can participate in every way in our elections. Um, uh, it, it means, uh, in, in the case of the rent laws, um, fighting to empower tenants and working people uh, rather than just developers and the real estate lobby. Uh, and, and you can look at every single uh, area of policy and see how 
historically and currently uh, the deck is stacked against working people. And so we need to be doing everything we can through policy to reverse that um, and empower the working class so that we'll, we'll be fighting for not only a socialist society, but um, a more equitable society. So it's, it's like really about using your leverage as a representative of the people and the state to give them more resources and like the potential to build their own like working class institutions where they can exert that power like more fully and unleash their creative potential. Absolutely. And um, I think the key to not only being a, a socialist, but particularly a democratic socialist is this emphasis on everyone's uh, collective responsibility in, in this, that, the you know, everybody in, nobody out. We want to bring as many uh, people into the movement as possible, with minimal gatekeeping um, so that, you know, we'll, we'll have more power together. Uh, that sounds great to me. Uh, you're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us, uh, connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com or sign up for our newsletter to get links to what we talk about on the show. You can do that on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at NYCRPM. Today, we're talking to a state senator and DSA member, Julia Salazar. Um, so we've been talking about, you know, kind of the theory and the practice that you have in Albany, uh, but we've been talking about that more on a broad scale, like ideologically, I, I would say. Um, but now, like, um, we want to talk about the specific material gains that have been made um, over the past few months in Albany. And I think the biggest issue that people have been focused on has been housing. Um, so you, can you explain the package of rent regulation bills that was passed last week? Yeah, so um, this year, as in, uh, as in the past, um, every four years, typically, uh, the rent laws that govern rent regulation that protect tenants, uh, mostly in New York City, but but throughout the state, uh, were up for renewal. Um, they were uh, slated to expire on June 15th. And for I've, I've never seen the housing justice movement as strong as it has been um, in the last year in anticipating uh, the expiration of the rent laws and building um, to to fight for the strongest rent regulations that we could. The Housing Justice for All Coalition, um, I know that this has been discussed on the show a lot uh, previously, um, but the coalition was fighting to pass these nine bills, one of which I was the lead sponsor of, um, the Good Cause Eviction Bill. But in addition to that, uh, bills that that particularly impact rent-regulated tenants, um, seeking to close the loopholes uh, that property owners have been able to use to uh, bring units out of rent regulation. Thousands of units of, of apartments um, uh, have been removed from rent regulation over the years in New York City, and that's just a profound loss of affordable housing uh, and, of course, leads to displacement um, and, and all sorts of problems in our communities. Um, and, and so this was an opportunity for us to really close those loopholes. But instead of just playing defense and closing those loopholes, uh, we wanted to expand expand rent regulation, uh, empower tenants across the state, their communities to opt in to existing rent regulation, and then also give protections to tenants who have never had any. 
uh, we in in the Senate and the Assembly, we hosted public hearings about the the rent laws um, over the last few months across the state. Uh, in the past, uh, it's been sort of this issue that was framed as dividing the city and communities outside of, of New York City, uh, that it, tenants' rights is, is just a city issue um, and that they don't need rent regulation upstate. But what we found through those hearings and the testimony of ultimately hundreds of tenants across the state is that they are desperate for intervention, um, for the laws to change in order to empower them um, to, to stand up and, and for, for their rights as tenants and be able to stay in their homes. Um, and so... So ultimately, we still we passed a really strong uh, rent regulation package. Um, it, it wasn't as usual, a hundred percent of what I wanted, but uh, it's still absolutely transformative. Um, it's going to keep a lot of people in their homes, and most importantly, uh, we made the rent laws permanent. There's no sunset date in this legislative package, and so. Um, we we don't have we're not in the position as organizers um, and advocates uh, of of having to be up against the wall four years from now and and uh, the opposition is not able to just um, re- refuse to talk about housing justice and tenants rights until we're down to the wire with the rent laws expiring and and um, so that's that's one of the biggest victories of passing this package um, is is not only that we have these stronger tenant protections. Um, for regulated and non-regulated tenants, but we um, we also are in a better position to demand more, and we and we should be demanding more. Yeah, rather than having to be constantly on the defensive against real estate capital, now the tenant movement like has the ability to continue to push forward and build more power. And you touched on how like you've never seen the housing justice movement like seems this powerful before, and like be able to really build like these institutions that can last. So like how critical were these like independent tenant um, unions and working class institutions of grassroots power, grassroots power in defeating um, real estate capital? And how do we keep fighting back against those forces? These grassroots movements were the most critical component um, of this of this victory. Uh, if it weren't for many of these advocates, these tenant associations, this coalition, first and foremost, um, th- actually it demonstrates the relationship between electoral activism um, and legislative advocacy, other grassroots organizing campaigns, uh, because a lot of um, these advocates had fought not only to elect me, but uh, other new progressives in the state Senate who ultimately were uh, really strong advocates for tenants' rights. But beyond that, um, they they didn't stop there. Uh, the, the unity of the housing justice movement no longer uh, concentrated in New York City, but uh, across the state. That's what made it so powerful uh, and compelled legislators who previously have been able to say, this isn't an issue my constituents care about. They heard from the tenants in Rochester, in Buffalo, in Binghamton, in Kingston, uh, and of course in New York City and in Long Island. Uh, and and that was, that was the most powerful thing. Um, and I, I think it especially 
it was what what allowed us to secure additional eviction protections, not the full good cause eviction bill, but additional eviction protections and, and those for uh, tenants outside of the regulated system because um, the 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 voices were from uh, from not not the same um, or tenants who had self-organized um, in the past in rent stabilized buildings uh, and and uh, it, it just made an enormous an enormous difference ultimately um, in, in getting us over the edge and empowering us to win as much as we did. Like the movement is really spreading, not just like in terms of like belief, but actual like inst- working class institutions are now like statewide and they're working together, which is just really beautiful to see. However, as you mentioned before, it's really important to recognize that we didn't win everything um, in this fight. The housing justice movement didn't achieve all its goals. And you, uh, like, were briefly talking about the uh, just cause eviction bill, but like, uh, why is this so important? Um, why did it fail the past? And like, what must be done to ensure it becomes law in the future? Right. So, so many units or apartments that were previously rent regulated have been lost, uh, and and for tenants across the state, they have virtually no protections whatsoever from an unconscionable rent increase, uh, at, or from eviction for for almost any other reason at all. Um, tenants often, what we heard from from tenants across the state is that even in places where, unlike New York City, rents are typically not rising at an unsustainable rate like they are in my district and and in the city um, even in in places where their rent is is relatively stable uh, they have a fear of reporting um, bad, poor conditions in their building they have a fear of organizing their building certainly um, a, a fear of complaining to their landlord because they know that their landlord will threaten to retaliate or just refuse to renew their lease even if they've been, um, a, a perfect tenant, even if they've paid uh, uh, on time, um, that there there are no protections for an unjust eviction. Um, and some would say, and, and frankly, I would agree, because I believe that housing is a human right, that nobody should be evicted. Um, but but uh, within the our legal context, uh, the strongest proposal um, that we could have it was and, and still is the good cause eviction bill, um, which I'll, I'll continue to fight for, um, despite that it didn't pass in this in this package. Um, I'll continue to carry the bill and fight for it. Um, we actually were able to to gather um, an enormous amount of support, more than on the other bills that did pass, which is is um, sort of telling about the legislative process uh, in, in a way um, and how things ultimately get done, especially when they're as contentious as the rent laws. Um, but yeah, it, it, the what the Good Cause Bill does is it would limit rent increases, tying it to something called the CPI, which is really just inflation, the rate of inflation, um, and and say you know if if a landlord tries to raise the rent above this threshold of your current rent, then uh, you uh, then in in court you there's a, a presumption that that was too high of an increase and the tenant shouldn't have to pay it and they they have to you know, charge you a more reasonable rent closer to what you what you pay now uh, and and a, a as long as the tenant exercises their rights which is in itself difficult to do. Um, uh, a tenant would be able to say, "You need to show good cause to evict me." Um, and and the reason that that threshold is really important uh, is 
is because often a landlord would, instead of properly moving to evict a tenant, they would just say, you can renew your lease, but this is the the rent increase, and it's so high that uh, the, the tenant can't afford to pay it, and so they, it's a de facto eviction, essentially, um, something that I've experienced uh, when I, and, and naturally it was shortly after I had uh, organized my building years ago. Um, so so that's, those are the, the essential provisions of the bill, and most importantly, it would apply to uh, tenants outside of regulated housing um, and with with only only some exceptions uh, and the exceptions just exist to protect um, small homeowners and people who live in their buildings um, that are owners who live in their buildings rather that sort of thing yeah it seems like kind of like not the final step but like the next step and what we were discussing before about really giving tenants like the ability to like not be on the defensive so that they can actually build power without being the threat of being thrown out of their home. And so they don't have, like, if you get thrown out of your home, what are you going to do with your life? It's really a violent act. And I think it's really crucial that we continue to fight for this bill so that, like, tenants can actually build power in this city and fight back against the people that are draining half of their income every month. Um, So you are listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com or sign up for our newsletter to get links to what we talk about on the show. You can do that on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, and you can also find us on Twitter at NYCRPM. Today, we are talking with Julia Salazar about the um, end of the legislative session in Albany and the future struggles and um, legislation that we hope to pass in the um, year to come. Um, So one uh, landmark legislation that I was really happy about was um, the commemoration of the Mets 1969 World Series. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, that was a fantastic resolution. (laughs) I'm hoping that I get to see one of those victories at some point in my lifetime. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I won't hold my breath either, but I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) But... um, I guess to get more serious for a second, um, we talked in depth uh, on our last week's episode about the CCPA, um, and, but I'm sure our listeners would be fascinated to hear a Democratic Socialist state senator's perspective on the legislation. Like, Why was it such an important bill? What changed at the last minute? And why does Cuomo always make things worse? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's very important to Governor Cuomo to um, be able to in- insert himself into the legislative process um, and and try to control the legislative process. Uh, what was actually remarkable about the rent laws victory was that um, it was it was primarily negotiated between the two houses. Um, and, and with when it comes to the CCPA, ultimately we'll pass the, the CLCPA, uh, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. Um, it's really landmark climate justice legislation. Uh, thankfully, there, the, the changes were minimal, um, I would say, to the final bill. It was really important to legislators for us to, to learn from uh, the mistakes in strategy of the past and to try to uh, really negotiate the legislation between the two houses. But what what's so important about it, some have called it a, a Green New Deal for New York State. Um, I'm hesitant to to use that label because um, I think there it is ambitious state climate legislation, um, but 
the purpose of this, the um, I'll just continue to call it the CCPA because <laughs> that's what's most familiar to people, uh, despite the last minute change, which was from Governor Cuomo, um, naturally. Uh, but he, he doesn't deserve for us to call it that. We'll just keep the original name. <laughs> we'll just keep calling it the CCPA. Um, uh, what's what's so important about it? I think is the emphasis on uh, climate justice, on environmental justice, and um, social 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 justice on on equity on equity. So how uh, we we know that the effects of climate change have been so much more severe for communities of color, uh, for working class communities, and we also know that any transition we that we it's it's a it's a crisis. Uh, it's an exis- It's virtually an existential crisis that we're facing um, with climate change. And in order to to actually combat it um, and reverse some of the fact the effects of it, uh, we need a complete transition to 100% renewable energy. And what the CCPA seeks to do is say. You know, by by 2050, 100%, and we have until then uh, some um, uh, benchmarks to meet uh, as far as transferring fully to 100% renewable energy. And in that process, with keeping in mind that climate change is disproportionately harmed uh, at-risk at communities, um, the communities I represent, um, uh, we we need to ensure that it's a just transition. So people who are currently employed um, by no real fault of their own, but em- employed uh, by the fossil fuel industry, um, uh, you know, working class people, um, also by um, by any of the the other industry that that kind of upholds um, the use of fossil fuels that those people are trained uh, to in, in green jobs, um, similar, similar work, so they can continue to do the work that they've done throughout their lives and not lose their jobs while also supporting a just transition and um, rejecting the continued use of, of fossil fuels. Um, and, and so I'm proud, you know, it is, it is entirely thanks to, I believe, the Organizations in the New York Renews Coalition, including NYC uh, DSA's eco-socialists, um, in, including uh, many of the organizations that were involved in other policy victories this session, um, that if it weren't for them, we would not have we would have we would have come out with something that's much more compromised. Uh, and it's only the beginning. We have to continue to we have to fight to make sure that the benchmarks are actually made. Um, or, or met, rather, the goals are met in the process of transitioning to 100% renewable energy, um, that the, the bodies that were created to oversee the transition, um, that the appointees um, on, those, on those boards um, are, are from the communities that are most impacted, um, and that they're, they're people who deeply care about this and, and um, care about the community's interests rather than, than private interests uh, like, like uh, the fossil fuel industry. You've been talking uh, a lot about like the, the marginalized communities that have been particularly brutally affected by capitalism and by state violence. And there's two legislation pieces of legislation, one that passed and one that didn't, that I want to dive into. But first, I just want you to briefly um, describe the Reproductive Health Act and um, why it was so important. Uh, 
I think that if we look across the country right now, we, we can see that um, women's rights, not just women's rights, but, but the rights of any pregnant person uh, to bodily autonomy um, are, are under attack in other states, um, in Ohio, in Georgia, in Alabama, um, really, really all over, um, and, and by the federal government as well. There's a, a, a terrifying threat to potentially overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, and so it was really important that in the very first week of this legislative session, we passed Senator Kruger's um, Reproductive Health Act to codify, not only codify the provisions of Roe v. Wade for um, for any pregnant New Yorker um, and uh, ensure access to a safe and legal abortion, um, but also uh, ensure that people who are in the later stage of their pregnancy, if the pregnancy is a clear, uh, you know, direct threat to their life, um, and and uh, if the pregnancy is simply clearly uh, deemed by a physician to not be viable, that um, even in in those circumstances, someone would be able to get an abortion because it's just completely unreasonable, um, and and poor medical practice, frankly, to deny an abortion when it's really when it's really necessary. Um, and and frankly, even when, you know, it's, as long as it can safely be performed, um, when it's not uh, absolutely necessary, uh, someone who is pregnant needs to be able to have that choice. Yeah, the way that the reactionary state governments and the federal government right now are attacking um, women's like health rights and ability to have bodily autonomy is just a vicious way of disciplining working class people because that's who's going to be, get hurt by this sort of legislation. Very rich people always escape the law no matter what. Um, and another way that um, both state governments, but particularly the federal government, um, is viciously, viciously attacking working class people right now is by targeting um, immigrants in general, but particularly undocumented immigrants. Um, and so uh, last week, the green light bill uh, was passed. Um, and how does this like directly impact the lives of undocumented people and protect them against the state terror of mass de deportation? Green light legislation extends the right to get a driver's license to every New Yorker, regardless of immigration status. Uh, this actually used to be the law in New York, not too long ago, it was it was um, in the few years after, just after 9-11, that um, due to anti-immigrant sentiments, um, a lot of rights that actually immigrants had in the U.S. and in, in New York State were curtailed. Um, and and uh, it's been a long fight to try to restore those rights. Uh, it's absolutely essential for, particularly for our undocumented neighbors who work who need the the um, uh, who work and and especially outside of the city, uh, we're fortunate to have, despite the problems with the MTA, we're fortunate to um, have a still a a pretty reliable and robust public transit system in the city. But a lot of workers, farm workers in particular, who thankfully also had their rights extended um, this session, uh, farm workers, uh, undocumented workers across the state, it's really important for them. It's important for parents, for families, um, and and frankly. You know, it's it's important that we recognize um, that 
people are already people are going to drive if they need to drive um and our roads are safer if we ensure that everyone um regardless of certainly regardless of immigration status it's absurd that that would ever be a barrier to someone being able to get a driver's license but um everyone who's driving be able to um safely get a license um and and uh you know be be trained in the rules of the road um but for me you know the most compelling reason uh to to pass the legislation is just to make sure that everyone um, who in other ways is dealing in their daily lives with anti-immigrant sentiments and racial discrimination um, and bigotry, that we can take this step to um, to give, give them dignity. Uh, everyone deserves to be able to move through our own neighborhoods um, with confidence. And, and thankfully, I think that's that's what we were able to do. And really humanize people and rather than like creating them as some other to be scared of. These are just human beings that are working, trying to survive, doing what everyday people do. And it's, I mean, it's really horrifying the way that they are demonized, but it's really encouraging to see legislation like this passed. Um, there's a lot of legislation that has been passed that uh, I want to talk about. I don't know if we're going to be able to fit it all in in the last few minutes, um, but I also want to open the phone lines, see if we can get maybe a couple calls as we wrap up. Uh, it's 212-209-2877. Um, that's 212-209-2877. Um, so there were a few um, acts that were being discussed around both like ICE out of courts, sex decriminalization and marijuana legalization that haven't passed yet, but are, were really critical. Is there any um, one of these in particular that you would like to discuss? Sure. Um, I'm happy to talk about any of them, but uh, I'm the lead sponsor of uh, a bill to fully decriminalize sex work um, in the Senate. So I'm, I'm happy to discuss that more if you like. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, because we, we just covered this in a recent episode where we had some incredible sex worker organizers from Decrim NY um, like come here and talk about like how absurd it is that they are like demonized in our society and that they are like really thrown into the underground economy and exposed to more violence that way. It's like, why is the decriminalization of sex work such an important struggle for socialists? And what is the status of the legislation? So we just uh, introduced the legislation, the full decriminalization bill, um, at the end of the session, about a week before session ended, um, myself and Assemblyman Godfried. Uh, so, so it you know it hasn't moved through committee or anything yet. We expect that to happen um, next next session and in January, uh, potentially sooner if if we return to Albany before then. But. Um, the, it's it's so important as as socialists, um, as progressives, and people who care about um, the working class and marginalized in our society, because a lot of the, the majority of sex workers are women and women of color. Certainly, in in New York City, um, a, a disproportionate number of them are trans, and uh, in the way that um, the so-called prostitution-related um, offenses and charges um, in state law are enforced is deeply discriminate, discriminatory against our trans neighbors um, and against women of color. Um, and so that's something that, that we should be deeply concerned about. We know that 
94% of the people who are arrested for a charge referred to as loitering for the purpose of prostitution, which is a, just a deeply discriminatory law, 94% um, of those people are black women. Um, and so the way that this is enforced, um, it's, it's really hurting the communities that I represent. Um, the, uh, in East New York, part of my district, um, and Bushwick, we've seen an alarming, alarmingly high um, number of, of people being charged with this. Um, and it's so important also to – we, we want to decriminalize sex work because we want to um, be able to empower people. Rather, We know that criminalization is not going to resolve the problems that – um, lead to people through circumstance or coercion um, to end up in the sex industry. Um, and and we know that we need to shift to instead um, toward a, a restorative justice model um, in general, but, but furthermore to just not criminalizing sex work, that it is work um, and that all workers deserve rights and to be able to do their work safely. And decriminalization is the path to that. Yeah, sex workers are human beings who deserve a life free of state violence. Um, and we have a caller on the line. We have a time for a very brief comment or question. You're live on Revolutions Per Minute. What's your uh, comment or question? Uh, hi, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, great. Uh, great show. I love your show. I love all these shows on WBAI. I wish they do more shows like this than music, but that's another topic. Um, I have to say, when you said it's absurd to have a person who has come in unlawfully to have a driver's license, that person needs to speak English. Our roads are very crowded. A driver's license is a privilege. It could be taken away if you're DWI or dangerous person. And to say it's absurd is a little bit above the word absurd because there is a legal process uh people that came in through ellis island had to go through a legal process we didn't just allow everybody to come in they have to be checked for any diseases they might have communicable diseases do they speak english can they support themselves uh there's a lot of things i mean i know there's a big outrage about putting kids in cages but that is not the fault of the government that is endangering the welfare of a child to try to bring them in. I know everybody wants to have a better life, but we've got 7 billion people on the planet. Half of those people would love to have a better life. I would love to have a better life by going to somebody's Hamptons home and mansion and making myself a, but that's private property and that's trespassing. School taxes are paid. People that come into the country get free school taxes. Hey, um, we're, we're running low on time, so I, uh, we've... We've heard enough. Um, I, w I would like to give the the state senator uh, a moment to respond. But first, when you say that it's not the government's responsibility, I would uh, do a little research into the dirty wars in the 1980s and what our country has done to Central America and what these people are fleeing from before you make very ignorant comments. But I would like the state senator to, to reply. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, a lot was said. So there's a lot to unpack, but I'll stick to the, the driver's license um, portion of of uh, the caller's question, um, uh, they mentioned actually d DWIs and means of revoking a license um, if somebody is driving irresponsibly, and I think that's pretty. It's pretty critical, even if, as as it seems, um, you're less concerned about 
immigrants' rights, um, most people uh, are concerned about our roads being safe. And uh, if if somebody isn't able to get a driver's license, um, then we can't determine whether or not um, they they legally, you know, should should be able to drive. That we we can't be adequately protecting uh, pedestrians, um, anyone else on the road. Um, and and uh, there are other mechanisms to make sure that anyone, certainly regardless of immigration status, um, is is driving who shouldn't be driving um, or who's a danger to other people. Um, but but there isn't a case here. You know, there there's really no uh, no case, and that this is what makes it absurd. There's no substantial reason to deny someone based on their immigration status alone the um, or or at all uh, the ability to drive. Yeah, the idea that it makes someone dangerous is ridiculous. Um, we have to wrap up now, but I just briefly um, want you to mention the important election uh, going on today and if you want to encourage people to go do something. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, I represent the 18th district, which is entirely in Brooklyn, but there is a very exciting race today um, for Queens District Attorney. We have um, a candidate, Tiffany Caban, who is um, you know, a queer Latina, fierce public defender, endorsed by DSA. I I was very proud to endorse her, and she has she has um, tremendous uh, grassroots progressive support. Um, has really run a campaign with integrity, and is a is a very promising candidate for district attorney. Uh, she would really be fighting to um, decarcerate. Um, and bring restorative justice to our community. So I really hope everybody gets out and votes. The um, the polls close at 9 p.m. tonight. Well, thank you so much for that great endorsement, and thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. There's so much more I would like to talk about. Um, we also will be covering the Caban election results live here on WBAI with uh, Revolutions Per Minute at 9 p.m. Uh, please join us then, and thank you for joining us for this episode.